So today I want to talk about dilemmas, dilemmas facing Putin. Military dilemmas, obviously, both on the battlefield and in terms of wider strategy, but also political dilemmas. And why, poor fellow, it's not a good time to be Vladimir Putin. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. Now, before I start, a quick public service announcement. I'm about to embark on a month of quite ridiculous amounts of travel from DC to London, including Stockholm, Oslo, Munich, Pristina, and indeed Berkshire. And in that time, I'm honestly not sure if I'm going to be able to record any podcasts. I mean, they might just simply be very sort of short ones or whatever. So do not necessarily assume that there will be podcasts in the next month. On the other hand, how, of course, could I forget my esteemed patrons? So patrons will be getting once or twice a week uh, an emailed commentary on what's going on at the moment. Perhaps not quite as same as my dulcet tones, but I hope it'll help uh, fill the gap. So as I say, who knows, but at the very least, I will be seeing you in a month's time. Anyway, on to dilemmas. And obviously we start with what's going on on the battlefield, the quite extraordinary Ukrainian gains from their Kharkiv offensive. And one that, I mean, it's worth dwelling just briefly for a moment on on what happened. Look, there's so much very well-informed military commentary that I'm not going to go into detail. But the key thing that struck me was that obviously a lot of the focus has been on the the battlefield detail, the Russian troops who fled, leaving food on their plates and so forth. In some ways, although, yes, it makes for nice copy, I don't actually think that this represents a a failure of the soldiers on the battlefield, even though clearly the Haki front was defended in the main by what we could be frankly hard-pressed even to call second-rank Russian forces. When all of a sudden your enemy is breaking through at astonishing speed, and this is very much, I think, a feature of this particular offensive, you really are faced with, and again, the theme of the the podcast, Dilemmas, a very tough dilemma. Essentially, do you just simply get the hell out fast to ensure that you do not get outflanked and possibly encircled? Or do you wait, see what's going on, maybe have a chance of fighting back, but more likely actually do get caught. And I think in, in that respect, it was a fairly rational move to evacuate at full speed, even though clearly that, that shades into rout. Now, as I said, I mean, given how few the Russian soldiers were, and above all, given that they had absolutely no reserves up there in the northeast, really this is a failure of operational management of the, of the war and, in that respect, strategy. And in that respect, really, it highlights two particular features that I think are worth bringing up. 
The first one is, again, I've, I've banged on about this before, the fact that essentially the Russians don't have enough troops. They had decided that because they were fully aware of the potential of an offensive in the south, around Kherson, that they had sent their best troops there, and they were you know, fairly well prepared for the offensive that followed, which is one of the reasons why, although the Ukrainians have made some progress, it's been nothing like the same as, as in the north. But that's the whole point. They were dealing with a very, very limited supply of halfway decent troops. And this is a problem that it is going to obtain. I mean, yes, we've got recruitment of, of convicts and volunteer battalions and whatever. These absolutely are not going to, in a substantive way, change the, situ the situation on the battlefield. So, lack of troops. But the other one is what we might think of as a lack of intelligence. And the interesting thing is whether or not that, shall we say, intelligence with a capital I or a small I remains to be seen. But for at least a fortnight, there had been reports, credible reports, about a Ukrainian troop build-up around Kharkiv. The Russians ought to have known that something was up, or at least that something was potentially up. Look, if me following Twitter is able to uh, discern that, then one would hope that the massed ranks of Russian military and civil intelligence and the analysts at the general staff and everyone else would also have been able to identify. Now, one could say, in part, it was simply a question of inflexibility of resources, that actually if you don't really have the chance to move forces, you just have to kind of cross your fingers and hope, not as we've seen the best strategy. Because it's true, because if you think about it, let's say they wanted to move forces back from the Kherson front to the Kharkiv front, well, they have no internal lines of communication. Essentially, these would have had to have been sort of brought all the way out, moved around Russia, and then reinserted, which takes quite a bit of time. Certainly a lot more time than it takes for the Ukrainians to redeploy forces using those internal communications lines. So, you know, one could say that maybe it was just simply that they had a sense something was up, but just didn't know what to do about it. But in that case, th there must have been other things that they could have done. So the whole question is, look, is it that they honestly didn't realize what was going on? Or is it the case that they had indications, that they had concerns, and these were not communicated up the chain of command? Or is it that they were, and the chain of command didn't know what to do, and or just simply didn't do anything? We don't really know at this stage. I'm sure there will be articles coming out in, in due course. But one way or the other, it really does emphasize this the crucial strategic dilemma now facing Moscow here. The Ukrainians have demonstrated that they can take on two operations at once, one perhaps being a little bit more forceful than the other, but I don't buy the notion that the southern attack from, from Kharkiv was really a, a feint. I mean, I think they basically launched two operations and saw what would happen. So in some ways, the, the Ukrainians are now in a position where, where they, they could actually muster an additional tactical force and attack where they see fit. Are the Russians in a position to handle that? I mean, it doesn't look like they've either got the intelligence, the mo mobility, or the resources in order to do so. So obviously they will have to, if they're going to try and dig in, they're going to have to do so on, along defensible lines, rivers and the like. And that is very much going to constrain them. I think this is it. This is the point. It's, it's about momentum. It's not just the momentum of the battlefield, which clearly the Ukrainians have, and this victory will also very much obviously perk up their morale no end. But it's also a strategic momentum, in that it is now, it seems to be more likely that the Ukrainians, which are imposing their view of the battlefield 
on to the Russians. And it's going to be very hard for the Russians to break out of that. And frankly, I don't think they can, certainly not this side of winter when military operations are likely to, to basically slow down. So I'm not necessarily saying this is going to be a, a stalemate all the way through until winter, but whether or not there is a stalemate is now essentially the Ukrainians' choice. And that is a very, very uncomfortable position for the Russians and, above all, for Putin to be in. Which leads me to the whole question of the political dilemmas that obtain from this. I mean, this you know, extraordinary and rapid Ukrainian success actually, I mean, in some ways, could perversely also be a problem even for the Ukrainians. There's a, a rather tasteless metaphor that is often used about boiling a frog that if you try and drop a frog into boiling hot water, said frog will quite rightly jump out. On the other hand, put a frog into cool water and slowly, slowly, slowly raise the temperature, then the notion is, and to be perfectly honest, I have never tested this and I hope I never see that it being done. But anyway, the notion is the frog doesn't really notice until he's already being boiled. Well, in this context, I mean, the frog has very definitely just been dropped into a pan of boiling water. So the question is, where might it jump? The danger is, therefore, that Putin feels he has to escalate precisely because of the scale and the shock, whereas a slow attritional defeat, maybe he would have got his head around the fact that things weren't working. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I am not for a moment, I think this is important to stress in an age when there are people who are still advocating that Ukraine should be giving up territory for peace, but I'm not for a moment saying that the Ukrainians shouldn't have launched this offensive, let alone prosecuted it to the fullest ability. What I am saying is that in itself creates risks. It creates the risk that Putin feels, because there's no real opportunity for de-escalation, and I'll come to that in a moment, that he has to escalate. And given that there is no easy and obvious way to escalate, the question is actually what potentially awkward, uncomfortable, and dangerous option does he take? So does he have any of those? Well, look, the word on everyone's lips is, of course, mobilization. It's quite interesting that we're now actually even seeing Russian figures who once upon a time would have been considered to be fairly sort of supine instruments of the Kremlin, like Communist Party leader Gennady Zyuganov, of which more in a moment, beginning to talk about all oh, the need for mobilization. Well, as I've touched on in the past, this is no panacea. First of all, while in theory, and I really would want to underline that, Russia could mobilize, what, almost up to a, a million men, even if of distinctly variable and probably on the whole not very great quality. In practice, the need to train or retrain them up a bit, arm them, house them, etc., really puts an upper limit of at most 100,000 to 150,000. Now, that's still quite a few troops, even though they probably will be largely be armed with 1970s or maybe 1980s kit, if they're lucky. But the point is that, first of all, this all takes time. I mean, in practice, we're talking about three months from the day you actually announce that there'll be a mobilization to actually having troops on the battlefield able to do anything. And of course, if you look at it, three months from now takes you into middle of winter. 
at a time when, frankly, you're not going to be launching major offensive operations, probably, and unlikely that your enemy will either. So in some ways, these, these troops will be, I wouldn't say wasted, though, frankly, if you then stick them in tents in the middle of a Ukrainian winter, they absolutely will be. But certainly, it, it's not something that can bring you that kind of immediate sense of surcease, that immediate sense that you're changing the arithmetic of the battlefield. It may well be that some kind of mobilization, whether full or partial, will indeed be introduced. But if so, I suspect that it actually it'll be a bit later on in the year, so that they are really ready for spring, when you know, that's when campaigning season starts again, to be perfectly honest. But in any case, look, there are huge political problems with we going for mobilization. First of all, generally, it speaks against the whole narrative that the special military operation is going to plan. Now, okay, they're already trying to find ways of tarting up the narrative to explain this, that, oh, no, no, it's all actually about the fact that NATO is involved. This is really a war against NATO. I mean, even claims that half of the troops involved in the Ukrainian offensive were foreign. Some would say mercenaries and some would say NATO troops. I mean, it's worth noting. It's absolute nonsense. You know, but even so, I mean, the fact that people are talking about that you know, suggests that they're trying to create some kind of a narrative to help justify calling it a war and indeed bringing in mobilization. But the point is, I don't think that's really going to wash, particularly because people are you know, very rightly going to be exceedingly alarmed. There's a huge cohort of men who, in a time of mobilization, could actually f consider the prospect that they will be called up to arms and forced to go and fight. And then, of course, you know, there's their families and everyone around them. I mean, you know, this really will be a society-wide crisis. And in that context, of all people, I want to quote Evgeny Prigozhin, the deeply unpleasant so-called Putin's chef, who is rather better known generally as the Kremlin's man of business whenever they want someone organizing commercial activities, whether it's troll farms or indeed whether it's the Wagner mercenary organization that is busy out there recruiting convicts to go and send to the front line. And a video surfaced of Prigozhin himself apparently haranguing convicts and encouraging them, them to join Wagner. And when this was raised, Prigozhin himself actually replied through the Concord Group, that's his business group's press department, on the social media channel of Contactia. And what he said was, those who don't want PMCs, private military companies, to fight, or, or prisoners, send your children to the front. And he con concluded by reiterating that stark point. Either PMCs and, and prisoners, or your children. And you know what? He's right. If people do not want they themselves, their families, their loved ones to be in the front line, well, then the alternative is exactly to go for a whole variety of other deeply morally and practically problematic options, such as, indeed, recruiting mercenaries, recruiting criminals, recruiting anyone else who's willing to volunteer. And in that context, Given that there's no way that they're going to mobilise every reservist, they're going to have to be making choices. And there also, there is a complex and difficult choice to be made. Up to now, a huge disproportion of the soldiers who are fighting and dying in Ukraine are coming from relatively impoverished, and that tends to mean non-Russian parts of the Russian Federation.
And that's not some kind of evil plan, it's just simply that of whole, these are the areas where, because of a lack of economic alternatives, people decided to join up and take what is, after all, in Russian standards, a relatively decent-paying job in the, in the army, not expecting to actually have to go and fight. On the other hand, though, if you are going to call up a certain fraction of your mobilization base, you then face a d dilemma of, shall I say, military effectiveness versus political safety. Do you go for the best reservists, which will essentially be the ones who have served in the relatively elite units, the paratroopers, the naval infantry, the Spetsnaz, special forces, and so forth? If so, and that's the, what makes sense for the sort of soldiers that you want from the general staff's point of view on the ground, but if so, you will actually be spreading the, the pain quite broadly. And in particular, you really will be starting to call up quite a lot of ethnic Russians, particularly because there's a lot of them within the airborne forces as well as the naval infantry. So in that respect, you will actually be, I hesitate to use the words, democratizing the war, but certainly creating a greater ethnic balance. But, of course, that actually means that the political pain also comes to the heartlands. Not Moscow, it's still a relatively privileged, disproportionate number of people get out of their national service by you know, university and whatever else. But certainly, if you think of the big second-rank industrial towns, which coincidentally are also the ones which are, at the moment, suffering the greatest economic pain and are likely to face even more as we go on and as enterprises begin to either shut down or reduce their hours and such like. So you would be piling political pressure on political pressure in Russian cities. Or, of course, you decide, no, instead we want to maintain this pressure on the you know, relatively politically marginalized ethnic regions which have been providing the soldiers up to now. We might not get quite the best troops that we want, but well, the political leadership decides that's what's going to be done. Well, as I said, first of all, it means a less effective force on the battlefield. But secondly, it will actually only exacerbate the existing potential for ethnic tensions. Look, I'm not one of the people who believe that this, is, this war is going to lead to a breakup of the Russian Federation. I see, at, certainly at the moment, absolutely no signs of that. There's no real uh, sort of independence movements, except maybe in the North Caucasus. And let's be, let's be brutally honest, most Russians will probably be perfectly comfortable seeing the North Caucasus go. Not that I imagine that uh, Putin will feel the same. But still... There's already beginnings of restiveness in some. If you look at places like so Dagestan, possibly also Udmurtia, and, and this is something that we saw with Afghanistan, what happens is a war that bleeds your population can also be mobilized as a symbol of wider oppression. And I think that's something that, that you know, even if it's not likely, it must be a political calculation in the Kremlin. Do you really want to do something that is going to risk stoking further ethnic tensions within your multi-ethnic federation? So this is what I mean about, again, when it comes to mobilization. One could question, yes, of course, having an extra 100,000 troops on the battlefield is going to make a difference. But because they're not good troops, because they're not well-equipped, because they won't be well-trained, they will also suffer a disproportionately high number of casualties. And that is, in turn, going to manifest itself in serious political trouble at home. 
And even then, you've had to decide whether or not to go for the best of them or whether to simply keep them for the politically marginalized regions that could then become politically particularly problematic. So mobilization is hard. And the reason I'm stressing this, apart from the fact that it's significant in its own right, is we should note a particular characteristic of Putin's. And that is that he does not like making tough decisions. He really finds it difficult when he's in a position where there are no good answers and he's just choosing between a succession of bad answers. And we've seen this time and time again. When the Kursk submarine went down, when the Balotnaya protests greeted um, his return and, and the you know, fairly dubious elections around that, and again, he wasn't at first quite sure how to respond. Or after the assassination of Boris Nemtsov in 2015 by Chechens working for Kadyrov, and then he was facing pressure from Kadyrov, from his own security apparatus who wanted something done about Kadyrov, and basically he disappears from view for over a fortnight. So I think you know, this is the thing. When, when Putin is faced with tough choices, he tends to be paralyzed. And although I think that the pressure for mobilization will at a certain point become very hard to resist, it's by no means an easy option. And of course, if we're thinking of tough options, we should also then move to the second one, which is the continuing understandable, and I have to say, I think slightly overblown fear that he will turn to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And the idea is not so much that he would immediately start by sort of blasting Ukrainian cities, Ukrainian troop concentrations or the like, but instead that he will ratchet up his threats and then perhaps in due course a tactical nuclear device will be launched at maybe a purely demonstrative target in the Arctic Oceans or maybe even something still essentially demonstrative, but rather more pointed, such as, for example, the con contested and now Ukrainian-held Snake Island off Odessa, with the hope that this would then intimidate Ukraine into making concessions and whatever. But of course, that only works if you are willing and able to make a credible threat that you would escalate, that you would actually strike Ukrainian cities. And, and this is the issue. Look, it's not that I believe that uh, Putin has an inner core of, of humanitarianism that would prevent him from doing that. But on the other hand, look, there can be surely, surely no doubt in the Kremlin that this would absolutely change the nature of the war in so many different ways. After all, from the, the West's point of view, and you know, it's worth noting that the United States does not see a difference between strategic and tactical nuclear use. As far as they're concerned, nukes is nukes. From the West point of view, this would make Putin even more dangerous, vastly more dangerous than he is now. And I think the result of that would be that the pressure in the West to actively adopt a strategy of regime change would be pretty much irresistible. And yes, whether this means supporting attempts to assassinate Putin or just simply trying to bring down the regime actively rather than sort of hoping that Russians organically do it, who knows? But nonetheless, I mean, I think that is the case. It is also worth noting that China would probably be inordinately displeased. The Chinese want the nuclear taboo to be maintained. And look, a cynic would say it's precisely because when they someday go after Taiwan, they don't want to run the risks of facing tactical nuclear weapons themselves of the sort that could sort of blast an entire invading fleet away in one, one go. But whatever the reason, I mean, it, there is no doubt that this is something that the Chinese, who are already signaling their disquiet. It was quite interesting that uh, 
Putin met Xi Jinping in Samarkand, the recent uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. And he, he thanked the Chinese for their balanced position on Ukraine, which is an, an interesting and elegant way of admitting that the Chinese are not entirely happy with what's going on, to say the least. And at the same time, he had to acknowledge that the Chinese had questions and concerns about this. I mean, this is, this is a, a big deal. I mean, he was hoping to be able to report that he had the full-throated support of his allies, and he clearly does not. And that's now, let alone if he started throwing nukes around. So, I mean, I think that you know, it would have a, a massive political impact in terms of you know, turning this genuinely into a war of sorts with the West. And it would alienate China. And I think it would also scare the bejesus out of his own elite, including his military elite. It would be a total breach of, of doctrine. I mean, Russian military doctrine makes it clear that nuclear weapons are only to be used in case of an existential threat to the motherland. Now, one could perhaps stretch Crimea and any attempt by the Ukrainians to retake Crimea into a threat to the motherland, but uh, you know, a few rockets being fired at Belgorod over the border or movement against the Donbass and Lugansk quote-unquote People's Republics certainly does not. More broadly, exactly, it, it makes things terribly dangerous. And I think it's one of those moments, I mean, and who knows, but it's one of those moments that could, could force people to make a choice. At present, there are a huge number, and I would say the overwhelming majority of figures within the Russian elite who are not happy with the way things are going, but who think that their best and safest option is just to keep their head down and hope things work out. Well, that's fine so long as, again, so, as it were, so long as the frog is very, very slowly being boiled. This would likewise represent a moment in which they were thrown into a pan of hot water and had to decide whether or not to jump. And I, I honestly don't know if they would. I don't know if the generals would follow Putin's orders to prepare and launch a tactical nuclear weapon or whether they wouldn't. But the point is, the possibility is, I think, something that must be exercising Putin, even if he is actually thinking about nukes. Because once that happens, again, that totally changes the situation. Once generals have resisted and refused orders once, well, the temptation will be to do so again and in other ways. And also, the, the whole might and majesty of the presidency, and particularly Putin himself, begins to come under question. There is something extraordinarily corrosive about that first point when people resist. So again, whether or not Putin, concerned as he is about the options facing him and quite what they would mean, whether he would go is another matter. So okay, so if, he, if mobilization does not provide an instant answer, if nuclear weapons aren't in any way a kind of uh, a magic instrument that will help make things better, what can he do? Well, that's the point. What can he do indeed? I mean, we've seen this current uh, campaign of strikes against infrastructure in Ukraine, dams, power lines, and such like, which, which clearly, you know, is going to have an effect, especially, you know, if you're targeting electrical supplies at a country where winters can go to minus 25 centigrade, well, yes, then actually, if people actually have limited or no access to power, that is going to make a deal, big deal. But I don't think there's any sense that it's something that's actually going to bring Ukraine to its knees and have it petitioning for, for peace. They still seem definitely committed. Plus, of course, we've got to remember that the Russians are slowly, or sometimes not so slowly, working their way through their stockpile of long-range missiles. 
Um, the estimate is, for example, that of the Iskander missile, which is one, one of the mainstays of their campaign, you know, they burnt through 80% of their stock. And production, again, there's different estimates about how many they can produce, but particularly because of the lack of microelectronics, they're only maybe able to produce between, say, 7 and 10 a month to, to, to stock up. And this is nothing like the, the sort of stocks that they are using up. So bit by bit, they are burning through their own capacity to actually launch this kind of campaign against Ukraine. So again, that's not an answer. I mean, it's, it, it helps satisfy Putin at the, at the time that he's doing something, but it's not going to change the situation on the battlefield. We've seen a few indications that the cyber attacks against Ukraine and the West, which you know, a lot of people worried about, and then in the usual pendulum swing, people then say, oh, we've seen nothing. Well, you know, there, there has been a, a, a constant stream of attacks. Well, that might be amped up, but again, it's not something that's going to have some kind of disastrous impact on the West. It's not a war winner. It, one can just go through all the various options. He can do little bits here and there, but nothing that is substantively going to change the situation on the ground. He has no good options. Since he's not willing to, aid to make some kind of uh, daring one, and frankly, the kind of peace which at the moment the Ukrainians would demand, because they're on a roll, they're, they're winning, why should they make concessions, is one that even Putin's tamest and most supine propagandists could not spin as anything other than a defeat. I mean, even if, and I think it's, it's questionable, the Ukrainians were willing to make some kind of a deal over Crimea, that would only be at the cost of the Russians withdrawing from every other bit of Ukraine. In other words, also the LNR and the DNR, and I would imagine heavy reparations. That's nothing that, at the moment, the Russians could claim to be a grand success. So in that circumstance, what has he got? His only option is just simply to hang on. Sure, yes, there'll be more reversals, there'll be more violence, there'll be more boys coming home in boxes. His hope is that somehow, magically, either Ukraine's will breaks, or, a little bit more plausibly, the West's does. I've talked about that. I'm not going to actually just simply sort of repeat things I've said in the past, but at present, although, yes, there's a lot of dismay in the, in the West about a hard winter coming up, but the thought that suddenly the West will, will, will crack and collapse, especially because that primarily means the United States, and the United States isn't suffering in the same way, well, I think that's a very fond, vain hope. But that's the whole point. If you can't make decisions, then really all you can do is cross your fingers and hope that things work out. And in that respect, in his own way, Putin is in the just the same position as his own elite. Keep the head down, not quite sure what else to do, but just hope things work out. But that, of course, raises a whole variety of political dilemmas, which I'll talk about after the break. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So when we think about the political dilemmas facing Putin, it's really quite interesting the way we're beginning to see the public narrative shift and obviously this is 
connected with increasing disquiet, even amongst people who are essentially Kremlin mouthpieces, about what's going on. There's been, for example, quite a lot of reporting about the way that Boris Nezhezhdin, who is, in fairness, a, a sort of long-time liberal figure in the so-called systemic opposition. So in other words, yes, he's opposed to what's been going on, but also willing to, to play a role, shall I say, w- within the overall sort of state-choreographed opinion space. But nonetheless, you know, he went on to one of these geopolitical talk shows on NTV and was actually basically dropping some real truths about what's going on and how, at things, as things stand at the moment, frankly, Russia was not going to be in a position to win. And I think that that's quite striking. Look, he framed it in very much the kind of classic good czar and evil boyars sort of trope, which is a sort of oh, usual way in which one, one gets round the, the challenges of speaking truth in authoritarian regimes, which is that clearly the, the Tsar is a fine, fine fellow indeed, but he is being misled or being given bad advice. But nonetheless, look, everyone can, can read between the very you know, wide lines there. So, you know, we're increasingly getting people criticising what's going on, and the interesting thing is that in the situation means that political opportunists have the chance to both criticise the Kremlin and yet at the same time wrap themselves in the flag. Because you have people like uh, Gennady Zyuganov, the aforementioned Communist Party leader, who stirred himself from his coffin to demand full mobilisation. Now, he then later clarified that, walked that back slightly to say, oh, he was talking about economic mobilisation. But nonetheless, the point is that he was actually talking about the fact that we need to get serious. And that is inevitably a criticism. That is inevitably basically saying that at present the Kremlin is not serious. But again, because you are playing the patriot card, you can actually call out the Kremlin for being half-hearted and yet be in a you know, relatively strong position to be able to do that. And I think this absolutely, and, and look, we're getting a lot, of, a lot of other people who are saying the same things, but I'm not going to kind of run through them. I mean, what is really interesting is precisely that, although in part some of this might actually be at the encouragement of the Kremlin, it may well be that they want people to be talking about mobilisation just to sort of test the waters, prepare the ground, and so that if Putin is going to take that step, he can frame it as, shall we say, the Tsar generously giving his people what they've been asking for, rather than just simply uh, an initiative from above. Okay, well, I'm sure that that's part of it. But this is also, again, part of the sort of opportunist politics of Russia. People like Zyuganov, who are you know, pretty much bought and paid for, nonetheless do want to keep trying to renegotiate their price. And when they see the Kremlin weak, when they see the Kremlin uncertain, then they begin to rattle the bars of their cage, hoping that as a result the Kremlin will buy them off with with, with something more. And I think it's really interesting about the way it emphasises the degree to which even people who have good connections and good antennae, even they themselves feel that the Kremlin is in a weak position and therefore it's a good chance to renegotiate their, their, their current price. And I think it's showing the limits of, of spin control. I think the Kremlin is quite rattled. It doesn't really know how to respond. I mean, certainly the, the response to the, the Kharkiv uh, offensive you know, has been you know, 
very, very striking by the absence of any kind of good line. They, they eventually, after a few days of uncertainty, they focused on this business of it's not the Ukrainians, it's really that we're fighting NATO. But nonetheless, I mean, that actually hasn't really worked very well, in part precisely because it took them so long to actually reach it. And instead, people are getting rattled. I mean, it was quite striking that uh, Dmitry Peskov, who is Putin's presidential spokesman, well, he was actually saying that uh, critical points of view are currently within the framework of the law. And it's worth noting that currently. I mean, again, I don't know how far that was purely a sort of a threat. But anyway, currently within the framework of the law. But he also added, the line is very, very fine. And he felt that critics need to be careful here. Now, look, Peskov usually tries to affect the persona of the sort of a rather genial soul. He's not usually a bully. And the fact that he is, and remember, this is the mouth of Sauron. This is the person whose job it is precisely to be his master's voice to the outside world, you know, suggests that he and indeed the Kremlin as a whole are rattled and are, are feeling those limits. And I think this is why we're seeing, well, part of the reason why, we're seeing the regime, which was once a sort of hybrid authoritarianism, losing its hybridity, and not just being an authoritarianism, but increasingly a totalitarianism. There were, for example, recent municipal elections. And although, again, a lot of the coverage went to the fact that a handful of municipal deputies in Moscow and St. Petersburg called for Putin to resign and face treason charges, respectively, um, this was in some ways the kind of the last gasp of real hardcore oppositionists. The real story about the elections on the 11th of September was basically United Russia, the, the, the Kremlin's bloc, sweeping the board. There were six elections to local legislatures, 12 city councils, and 15 gubernatorial races, and exactly, United Russia basically swept across the lot. Even in Moscow, which tends to be the place where you see the majority of oppositionism actually sort of manifesting itself, I mean, what have we had? Of the seats to the city councils and things, local uh, bodies, 81.86% went to United Russia. And an additional 9.46% went to candidates who were backed by Mayor Sabianin's My Neighbourhood ticket, which, you know, I think we can basically consider to be United Russia by another name. And that means they have 91.32% of, of, of all the seats. Is this an honest election? Of course not. And frankly, it was even more transparently dishonest, I would suggest, than, than many of the previous elections we've had, which is you know, no mean feat. But I think it's, it's another step on the road to totalitarianism. We've seen essentially a purging of any kind of real oppositionism from within the electoral process. And why do you do this? Why do you bother having an election? if you are going to have a you know, carefully engineered landslide victory, which surely no one can truly believe. Well, again, it's a classic tactic of totalitarian regimes that the purpose of the election is as much as anything else to create the illusion of an absolute consensus in support of the regime. The hope is that le this leaves anyone with dissident thoughts thinking, wow, it looks like I'm alone, and therefore I had better keep quiet. 
I mean, manufactured consensus actually it does have a certain power of itself. But what it does do, well, first of all, it means that the system loses a whole series of capabilities that it had so long as it was hybrid. First of all, just simply giving people the opportunity to vent frustrations and feel that it's, it's meaningful in some way. Well, at a time when pressures are building up, you'd think that Russian society is going to need its vents all the more. But nonetheless, this one is, is closed off. So instead, pressures build up. Secondly, it you know, has the value of looking legitimate, it making people feel that the regime, even if they disagree with certain key policies or dislike the person at the top or whatever, but generally people feel, but okay, it is the will of the people. Well, again, it's harder and harder to actually get the people to genuinely believe that. And finally, it's also a chance to co-opt moderate opposition that is being lost. You know, if it, everything now becomes essentially about loyalty tests, you have to be a patriot or you are nothing, you're a traitor. Well, the old scope within the hybrid system, which allow people, again, people like Boris Nedezhdin, to in some ways be incorporated into the system, perhaps uncomfortably, perhaps in a semi-detached way, but nonetheless incorporated, well... That doesn't exist anymore. Now, most of the people who would have been in that position will therefore not get into politics, or they will focus entirely on very, very local, very apolitical issues. But those who won't, those who can't, those who feel they absolutely need to get involved in politics, what you are now saying is, there is nothing for you here. If you are going to be at all politically active and you're not willing to be a 100% loyalist, you are therefore a 100% oppositionist, and more or less you, you become not an opposition figure, but a revolutionary. And again, that is a dangerous thing for a system to be. I mean, this is essentially the return of a one-party state. And we know how well that worked in Russia. Look. The Soviet one-party state survived for a long time, but it survived for a long time for a whole variety of reasons, including the will and capacity at different times to use gratuitous amounts of violence, but also because of what benchmarks did people have. The thing is now people can remember, people can remember previous ways of things being done. In the short term, this helps ensure political control on the system. But in the long term, again, this is just another example of Putin's hunkering down. That he's not willing to go into full op oppression at the moment. Well, obviously, that's a good thing. But on the other hand, he is sufficiently rattled by the possibilities and just simply, I think, too inflexible to do anything but finally allow his system to return to its natural authoritarian or totalitarian roots. And this, in the short term, gives him a certain degree of political control. In the long term, again, like all of these decisions that he's ducking, it means that as and when uh, some kind of serious decision needs to be made, it will be all that more hard, all that more dangerous, all that more expensive. These are the dilemmas facing Putin, and these are the dilemmas that Putin is ultimately failing to address. Again, on that note, I will stop. Again, a reminder that uh, podcasts over the next month may well be few or far between, or indeed none at all. But if you're a patron, do watch your mailbox, because you should be getting one or two uh, posts coming in every week. 
But in the meantime, well, thank you for listening and I look forward to talking to you again as and when that may be. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.